Now, should you feel the need to stand up while I'm preaching, you go right ahead. Now, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We began 1 Corinthians chapter 15 back in November. So we pick up again now from verse 12 uh, onwards uh, in this great chapter on the resurrection. It's such, a, it's such a pity that we relegate it to Easter, isn't it? Because this is, this is essential to the Christian faith. So necessary for us as believers. So, uh, we will read from verse 12, and I'm just going to read to verse 19. From verse 12 to verse 19, this is part, a portion of the whole section from 12 through 34, uh, so we'll break up these uh, verses, the first part, 12 through 19, this morning. So verse 12, Paul says, Now, if Christ is preached or proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And we'll end there and pick up verse 20 next week. So we want to say this morning that there's much more to life than just this life. Let's pray together. <clears throat> now, gracious Father, help us, we pray, to grasp this portion of Scripture which is before us, so real, so significant to us, to what we believe, what we confess, so relevant to the Gospel, so essential to the Gospel. Without it, there is no hope. So help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to comprehend the Word and to put it into our minds and into our hearts that we might rejoice in it and that we might respond to it. So we praise you for it and thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing the Apostle Paul does right here in this passage is to simply teach us that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Or to put it the other way, if there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead, then not even Jesus is risen from the dead. The consequences to that are massive, aren't they? Uh, that puts the gospel away, don't need the gospel, don't need the cross, don't need forgiveness. You need none of it. If the resurrection falls, if there's no such thing as Jesus risen from the dead, then there's no such thing as 
general resurrection from the dead, then this is all there is. And that's why Paul, in verse 19, says that if in this life you only have hope in this life, then we are of all people the most miserable, the most to be pitied. Now this is an argument, verses 12 through 19. It's a profound argument, but it's a simple argument. It's easy for adults, young children, to grasp this if they follow the Apostle Paul. And so Paul presents his first statement about the resurrection of the dead in the form of this argument that he presents to us in this passage. And so this morning, in order to discover that there's more to life than this life, we need to see what Paul says step by step as he works his way through this argument for the resurrection of the dead. So this is how Paul has begun chapter 15. If I can remind you of the opening passage, uh, you'll notice in verse 3 through 5, this is what he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So in other words, Paul says, I got something and then I gave it to you, Corinthians. And what did he get? He got the gospel. And then he just preached the gospel. So that is, look at verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared. So don't forget that part. So Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, Jesus' resurrection, and His appearances are what the Apostle Paul has spoken about in the first 11 verses. So this is how he begins. And he tells them that this is the gospel that I had received, that I passed on to you. Look at verse 1. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The gospel that they believed. He says that you received and in which you are standing. And not only that, but you are saved by this gospel. So you can see that immediately in the first 12 or first 11 verses, the Apostle Paul has said it is necessary to believe what the Scriptures say about Jesus, about His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and the fact that He appeared to others. These are the essentials, he says, to grasping this doctrine of the resurrection. So this is how Paul be, uh, begins. And he tells us that these Corinthians, these, these remarkable people of the first century, who were troubled by so many things in their church, who were struggling with so many things, he tells them, look, you received this word, you believed this gospel, and now you are standing in it and you are saved by it. As is anybody who receives the gospel and believes the gospel and remains firm in it, to the end, they are saved in this gospel and by this gospel. So the resurrection of Jesus, he says in verses 3 and 4, uh, was not only affirmed by Scripture. Notice Jesus died, buried, was, and rose according to the Scriptures. He means the Old Testament Scriptures, doesn't he? Primarily. But then he brings the Corinthians out of the Old Testament into the present and he talks about what the Gospels reveal, this doctrine of Jesus. And he says, you saw Jesus. So he talks about, you'll notice, the appearances of Christ in verses 5 through 8, that, that Jesus risen from the dead was validated by people who saw him alive. And he lists those witnesses if you look at the passage. He says, Jesus 
was seen alive from the dead, risen from the grave, first of all by Peter, Cephas, then by the disciples, then he says by 500 plus brothers, then by James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, and then by Paul himself. I saw him, Paul says. When did Paul see him? On the road to Damascus and spent time then learning from Jesus as we know. So notice these two things now that are said right up front to carry us all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That this doctrine of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is because of the Scriptures. And it is validated, the resurrection of Jesus, by all of these men and women who saw Jesus. And there are many other witnesses we know when you read the Gospel accounts. Those witnesses, so varied, so different, men and women, uh, bearing testimony to the fact that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, Jesus is risen from the dead. Those witnesses, Paul says, you should take them at face value. They saw Jesus, and I add my name to the list, he says. I, Paul, one untimely born, I saw Christ, I've seen him. So, 1 Corinthians 15, this passage, it revolves around two main questions. So the first question is, look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can they say that? There's a question, right? So here in Corinth, if Jesus is proclaimed, according to the Scriptures, validated by the witnesses as risen from the dead, how can some of you say, he says, in the church at Corinth, that there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead? That's the first question. Second question, go down to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Second question. Uh, Paul says that's a foolish question, foolish person to ask it. Uh, by the way, there's still people who ask that question. What will the body be like? Hey, you know, even serious-minded Christians, I wonder what the body will be like. Paul says, how can you ask the question? He says, uh, how are the dead raised? And he's going to tell us. So, we will get to the second question, but this is what 1 Corinthians is about. It's about these two questions. Verse 12, first question, and then this second question that we have right here in verse 35. Now, you know, when Paul reports these questions, I don't think he's too impressed by the questions. In fact, he's not impressed with the Corinthians. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems in the church, right? They have their little petty squabbles amongst themselves because they have formed these particular attachments to preachers like Peter, like Paul, and even like Jesus. So in the congregation, they have these little groups that are factions, and those factions have produced division in the church. So Paul addresses division in the church. Big subject in Corinthians. That division pervades the entire epistle. There are, there are matters about uh, going to law courts with your brother. There are matters that are sexual or moral in nature that have to be dealt with in the congregation. There are questions about, about marriage that the apostle Paul deals with 
in chapter 7. There are questions about food offered to idols in chapters 8 and 9. And remember, those questions are predicated always in the text by when Paul says, now concerning whatever the subject is, now concerning marriage, now concerning food offered to idols, and so on. He talks about the idolatry and the immorality of Israel as an example for us to avoid, for the Corinthians to avoid, to learn from. And in chapter 11, he defines the worship of service of the congregation and the, the gathering together to break bread and to remember Christ. In chapter 12, he talks about the, the division of, of spiritual gifts spread among the congregation, that all Christians ought to use those gifts. And then he defines what really speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy is all about in chapter 13 and chapter 14. And we've considered all of those things. So there's a lot of stuff going on in Corinth, right? Now Paul is answering these questions that are raised by the Corinthians themselves. And I don't think he's too impressed by them. I mean, in verse 12, for example, why would you even say that there's no such thing as a resurrection if Jesus is raised from the dead? I mean, what a foolish question, right? How can you say that if you and I have been proclaiming and preaching that Jesus is raised from the dead? And then if you look at verse 36, in response to those questions of 35, he calls them foolish. You foolish person. So, I don't think Paul is too impressed by these questions about doctrine. Now, I say that because... This reminds each one of us this morning, all of us this morning, that we should believe or we must rather believe what Scripture says without questioning and without debating and without doubting what it says. I say that because most people who have questions <clears throat> ask those questions simply to validate a position that they probably already hold and are not changing. They just want to find out what you think. They've already made up their mind. They're just validating their own position that they have. Now I say 1 Corinthians 15 is very important to every Christian. In fact, I think preachers for centuries have been saying exactly the same thing. In fact, as you read 1 Corinthians 15 as a Christian, you understand that this is so important. Because what the apostle is doing is he is presenting issues... And he is clarifying those issues, and he is answering all the objections to the question, or by the questioner. He's dealing with all of those, and he's, he's sorting them out. So I say that that is crucial and essential and important to understand in 1 Corinthians, because if resurrection is not true, then the entire Christian faith, as we believe and know it, is not true. So the consequences are massive. In fact, why are we here? If Jesus is not risen, and there's no resurrection for us in the future, why are we here? It's a valid question, right? So this is for the Apostle Paul to unfold or preach or proclaim the resurrection. For him it is essential to cement the validity of the Christian faith. It's one thing for Jesus to die a vicarious substitutionary death, and to be buried in the grave, but if he stays in the grave, of what use is the vicarious substitutionary atonement? Nothing. Zero. So all that we have believed and confessed means nothing. And that's what Paul's going to break down and unfold for us uh, in this passage, and that's what he shows here. 
So verse 12, notice verse 12, makes a statement, right? If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. So what is the statement that he's making? <coughs> the statement is, I've been going around preaching, and others have been preaching, that Christ is alive. That Jesus is risen from the dead. That's our proclamation. That's our preaching. Right? So the question we would ask ourselves when we look at verse 12 is, why would Paul, or why would anyone else preach? Why would they do that? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> well, they would do it on the basis of evidence, right? What is the evidence? Verses 1 through 11. <coughs> so there are all these witnesses. Look at them, verse 5. Peter, Cephas, and the twelve. <coughs> then he appeared to more than 500. And then James, and last of all, he says to me. And those witnesses, Paul says, you have, and I'm one of them. He says, not only that, but you have the Bible. You have the Old Testament scriptures. And these two authoritative scriptures, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> these two authoritative witnesses that we have, sorry, they proclaim, both of them, the Bible and the witnesses that Jesus is raised from the dead. Sorry, my voice is failing. <coughs> so, having these two authoritative witnesses, Paul asks this question, or makes this statement in verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can any of you say that there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead? Now, will you notice in verse 12, it's not all the Corinthians. <coughs> how can some, some of you say, how can some of you say? Why does he say that? Because not all the Corinthians believe. Now, isn't this interesting? Because this tells me that these Corinthians, they all believe the cross. They all believe Jesus died for them. They all believe Jesus died on the cross. But some of them, some of them are saying there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. And of course, Paul says, if that's true, then Jesus is not raised from the dead. And when he says this, I think Paul's asking us, well, what kind of faith do we really have? You see, our faith, the Christian faith, our faith is not a blind faith. The faith that's in the world in many, many things is a blind faith. Or it's a hope-so kind of faith. Well, I hope it works out. That's not the Christian religion. That's not our faith. Our faith is not a hope-so kind of faith. It's not a blind faith faith. You remember how Thomas, when confronted by the other disciples, the other ten disciples, he said, we have seen the Lord. I mean, how did he respond to that? Huh. Unless I see hands, feet, side, I will never believe. Unless I have the evidence in front of my eyes, I will never believe th this Jesus risen from the dead. So Thomas wanted to see Jesus physically alive before he believed, but it wasn't necessary, was it? It actually wasn't necessary. He should have believed Peter, James, and John, and the others. Because Jesus, you remember, reminds him about all those people who are going to believe who have never seen me risen from the dead and how blessed they are. That includes you and me this morning. So he should have believed everything Jesus had said about himself, right? 
how the Son of Man would be taken and would be buried, uh, crucified and buried, and then on the third day rise again. Thomas heard that many times. He should have believed that, right? Now, everything that follows here in the passage in verse 12 is directed by Paul at dealing with the problem that is posed as if there is no resurrection. So there is a doctrine of no resurrection, isn't there? That's what the Sadducees believed. The Sadducees believed there is no resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe the supernatural. So how can some of these Corinthians now say this and raise this issue? So the question is, how does Paul deal with it? Verse 12, what's he going to do? Well, may I suggest to you, he gives us two statements, right? He gives us two statements. The first statement is verse 13, and the second statement is verse 16. So look at verse 13. First of all, the first statement, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That first statement Verse 13 is the consequence of verse 12. Now this is his argument, alright? So follow it. And verse 16, you have the second statement, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. That's the consequence of verse 15, which we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead, consequence, are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So we've got these two statements, right? Verse 13 and verse 16 that follow the consequences of ver the, from verse 12 and from verse 15. But that's not all Paul does in his argument. He doesn't just give us these initial consequences, but he's going to go on and give us six other consequences that flow from what he is talking about here. And the reason he does that is because he's going somewhere. Where's he going? He's going to verse 19. And in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's where he's going. If you want to take this no resurrection of the dead, meaning no Jesus raised from the dead, then this is where you get to. You get to a, a, a life that you're living that has no hope, no future, is going nowhere. And Paul says, if you have this kind of life and you have placed all your hopes in Christ and it goes nowhere and means nothing, you are of all people on the face of the earth to be pitied. You are miserable. You are wretched, he says. That's where he's going. So what is he doing? He's going to provide proof, right? For the resurrection of the dead as a consequence of Jesus being raised from the dead. Now this is the point, right? We have... In the Old Testament, some examples of people raised from the dead, but they died again. So that's not a resurrection with a new body, which is the question Paul deals with in verse 35 onwards, right? What is the body like? But that's just a resurrection back to life, back to the old life that God permitted. We see it with Jairus' daughter. We see it with Lazarus from the tomb in uh, the New Testament, these the widow of Nain's son, these resurrections to life, but they died again. That's not what happens with our resurrection. Our resurrection is unto life. And if you are not a Christian, it is under judgment, unto wrath and condemnation. So what Paul is going to do here is connect the resurrection of all the dead but particularly of believers, of course, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, by the way, he's, 
He's very logical, he's very systematic, he's very persuasive, he's very penetrating. He gives us this beautifully crafted argument that I think every one of us, if we pay attention, are able to understand. So let us not make the mistake this morning of separating the resurrection of the dead in the future from the resurrection that happened in the past of our Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a mistake to do that. They are intimately connected. So that's verse 13 and 16. So look again at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Obviously. And verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So here's, here's what he's done, right? This is what Paul is saying to us. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, then there's no such thing as a resurrection for the dead. And then, if there's no such thing as a resurrection for the dead, then not even Jesus himself is raised from the dead. So he just, just, he just closes off all arguments against this idea. How can some of you say there is no resurrection? Because the consequences of no resurrection of the dead means Jesus himself is not alive and is still dead, still in the tomb, still in the grave. So we know this because Jesus himself said things like this. John's Gospel, chapter 14, right? That great comforting passage to the disciples of the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, because I live, you will what? Live also. Because I live, you will live also. So all the claims that Jesus ever made, all the things Jesus ever said, are all tied to the resurrection of Jesus and ultimately to the resurrection of yourself and myself and to all people. That's why Jesus said at the tomb of Lazarus to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, right? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he what? Live. That's our hope, right? Though I die, yet shall I live. Why? Because Jesus is alive because Jesus is risen from the dead. So how foolish a question, really, verse 12 is, right? How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And how mistaken that question is, since verse 13 is given by Paul. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So the consequence of saying in verse 12 that there is no resurrection of the dead is that Jesus himself is not raised from the dead. Now you'll notice I've said this a number of times. That's because Paul says it a number of times. And he doesn't apologize for it, right? Because he wants to get it into the thick head of some of these Corinthians. What kind of question are you asking? Right? So the consequence of Jesus not raised from the dead is huge. For you, for me, for the Corinthians, for the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul tells us exactly what these consequences are. So, what are the consequences? Here's consequence number one. Look at verse 14. Notice, and if Christ has not been raised, consequence number one, our preaching is in vain. You see that word vain? He doesn't mean you're parading yourself before the mirror and saying how wonderful you look. It's not what he means by that. This word vain means useless. It means to be void of all reality, to be void of all truth. So our preaching is void of all truth. 
our preaching is empty. Your witnessing nothing. Your sharing the gospel means nothing. It's useless, he says. Now just take a minute and think back to preaching, to all kinds of preaching, and preaching over the centuries. I mean, no doubt in America today and around the world, there are millions of preaching, preachers who are preaching. And I trust that those preachers are preaching the orthodox faith, right? That Jesus is risen from the dead, that they believe that, that they're convinced of that, that that's their life because that's their future, Jesus risen from the dead. Think of all that preaching today, let alone every Sunday, every day, whenever it's taken place in the past. Think of the words that have been said in human history since the cross, that Jesus is risen from the dead. What was the central feature, motivating factor of the disciples after they saw Jesus alive? To proclaim Him. To preach Him. As dead? No. To preach Him as risen from the dead. Now think of all your witnessing. I mean, every day you might have opportunities to witness. And the Apostle Paul would tell you, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, and if there's no resurrection of the dead, then all that witnessing, all that sharing of your faith, he says, is empty, useless, devoid of truth. You've actually been a liar in your words. If Jesus is not raised, and if the dead do not rise... So every word that has ever been spoken about Jesus risen from the dead, Paul says, if there's no such thing, then it's all empty and a waste of time. So if Jesus is not raised, all those words, all that witnessing, all that sharing for 2,000 years means nothing. That's what he means. Then our preaching is in vain. It's serious, right? It's serious. How tragic that in pulpits there are ministers who proclaim that there's no such thing as a resurrection. That there's no such thing as even Jesus raised from the dead. It's just a human construct to make you feel good in your life. To, to ease you through your difficult days, your, your losses, your trials, your, your problems, your pain. It's just made up by man to make you feel like there's something worthwhile and that you have to aim for and you feel better within yourself. What a lot of nonsense. Right? I've never discovered people feel better from themselves because of those things. Everything the Old Testament pointed to and looked forward to and reveals, and everything the New Testament proclaims and declares, all the doctrine, all the teaching, means nothing if Jesus is not raised from the dead. has no value. It's devoid of reality, devoid of truth. Now, let's take for example, if you were to, or someone was to say, you know, Jesus' life was quite remarkable. In fact, it's the best example there is out there. I think you should follow Jesus. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? It's not necessary to believe that. The life of Jesus is, is a, the greatest example you could have. That's all you need to live a, a wonderful life. What would you say to such doctrine? You would say it's false. You would say it's heresy. Even though... We would say that the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is 
beyond anything comparable in all humanity and is an example. But that's not what saves you because Jesus is an example. No, it's because Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the tomb on the third day. So, we must know what we believe. Our preaching, Paul says. So it's not just Paul preaching, Peter, James, John, and everybody else, every other preacher, and even you, if you share the gospel. We must make sure that we know what we believe and why we believe. And Paul says, I can help you. The Bible says it, Old Testament, according to the Scriptures. And there are witnesses who are reliable. And he gives those for us. So all doctrine and all preaching is just because Jesus is alive. Why should you study, for instance, a systematic theology in your spare time? Which you should, by the way, in your spare time. Why should you do such a thing? Why should you occupy yourself with some deep, deep doctrine that the Bible speaks about? I'll tell you why. Because it's true. And why is it true? Because Jesus rose from the dead. This is a massive consequences for us, right? So even my practical reading is affected by my doctrine and my understanding of, the G, of Jesus being alive, Jesus being raised from the dead. This is a massive consequence, isn't it? The gospel is ruined if there's no proclamation that, the, that Jesus is risen from the dead. There's no gospel. There's no gospel if that's true. So that's consequence number one. Not only then, Paul says, what has been declared, what we have proclaimed, what we have preached, but look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been praised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, he says. Your faith is in vain. What you have believed, what you have confessed, what you have trusted. In fact, Paul says, without the resurrection, there's no ground for believing anything. By the way, it's not just that there's an afterlife that Paul's thinking about. Because there are many philosophers who believe in life after death. Right? The Athenian philosophers always wrestled with the question about life after death. Socrates, Plato, and all of these guys. Yes, there is something in their understanding. The soul, the spirit exists. But that's only all true, ultimately, because Jesus rose from the dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no ground for believing anything. What does our faith rest in this morning? The Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, right? So, Jesus risen from the dead, Jesus alive, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what I believe. And that he died for me. So if faith is vain, then that means saving faith is just a useless, empty gift from God if Jesus is dead in the tomb. Well, that's a big consequence. (coughs) Because the Bible tells us we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us, gave himself for us. So, your preaching, your faith, vain. Consequence number three, look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we've been testifying, preaching, proclaiming that God raised Christ 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So what does he mean? He says you'd be making God to be a liar. So if you go around saying that Jesus is raised from the dead, you'd be misrepresenting God if Jesus is not raised from the dead. <coughs> so we would make God to be a liar. So that everything Paul says, everything Peter and John and the rest have said, all the Gospels that they have written, all these things, they've been testified that God raised Jesus from the dead. If that's not true, then you're lying about God, Peter, James, and John. That would be blasphemy, wouldn't it? To say something about God that is true about God, but you actually say it's not true. It didn't happen. So Paul goes, goes from these consequences that are, that are serious when you think about this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus. And the book of Acts, it's remarkable when you read the book of Acts, it says over and over again that God raised him from the dead. Over and over. Over and over in all those passages where Paul is out there preaching to the Gentiles, proclaiming that Jesus is risen from the dead, there he is out there and testifying, God raised Jesus from the dead. Now you come along, you Corinthians, and some of you say there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead, which means there's no such thing as Jesus risen from the dead. You make God to be a liar. So you can see how important it is that if you are going to believe orthodox doctrine, which we say we believe, you better make sure you believe it. Because if you don't believe it, you're testifying against God that it's not true. In fact, you might even be attributing to God, as Paul says here, the facts that God himself is a liar. Can't do that, right? In fact, Paul has already told the Corinthians back in chapter 6 and verse 14, God raised the Lord and God will raise us also by his power. So they already know Jesus is risen. And we will rise. Well, if God hasn't done that, then everything Paul has been saying, he's been a false witness. What is the, what is the judgment for false witnessing? Death. Right? You deserve death if you testify against God. And don't, make the, don't miss the connection. Look at the end of verse 15 that Paul makes. Right? If the dead cannot rise, then Jesus must still be dead if such a thing were true. But it's not. Because the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of the dead are all together. One hinges upon the other. So, preach in vain, faith vain, God to be a liar. But there's more, isn't there? That comes from the second statement in verse 15. That we have testified that God raised Christ if he didn't raise him. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So look at consequence number 4, verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now he's told us our faith is vain. But this is a different word. This word for futile means worthless, means unprofitable, means fruitless. In fact, it relates to that which is deceptive or it relates to that in which you are deceived. <coughs> you are deceived by what you have believed if the dead are not raised, and if Christ is not raised, you are deceived. So Paul says your faith is futile. Ah, but look at consequence number 5, verse 17. 
and you are still in your sins. Now you know, dear congregation, it's quite possible someone here this morning is still in their sins. Because they don't believe the gospel. Because they don't know Christ. Because they haven't repented. And they haven't believed this gospel, this beautiful gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. They are still in their sins. That's just like as if there is no resurrection of Jesus. Then you are still in your sins, if that's true, right? What does that mean? You're in the dark. You're lost. You must perish, right? That's the consequence. Everything Jesus did on the cross then is invalid. It doesn't apply. It's of no value at all. You are still under the wrath of God and still under condemnation because remember, these Corinthians believed in the cross. They trusted Jesus. But now, if you start talking about the fact that there's no resurrection, the consequence of that is you are still in your sins. So what did Jesus do on the cross? Nothing. Nothing. Can't change you. Can't save you. So you see how necessary the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is. As Paul reminds the Romans in chapter 4 and verse 25, for our justification. He was raised for our justification. In order to be justified by faith, you need a risen Christ who guarantees all our resurrection in the future. So if Jesus didn't rise, then you're not justified and you're not forgiven. So to deny the resurrection means to deny the sacrifice of Jesus. You see how it goes backwards? So Jesus dies, is buried, and you say he's not raised, well then what's the value of his death and his, res his burial? Now, Paul's saying these things because these are very personal matters. You have to think seriously about these things for your own self, for your own life. Because if, if Jesus is not raised, you've got nothing except one thing, your sins are all about you. They rule you. Because don't we struggle even as Christians with sin? Without Christ, you're in sin. That's all you do. So to say that Jesus is not risen, that's all you're going to keep doing. If you don't believe the gospel, that's what do you keep doing? You keep sinning. You just, it's natural. It just happens. The Christian struggles with sin. The Christian hates sin. The Christian fights sin. But those who don't hate and fight sin love sin. They're in the darkness. They're perishing. They're under the wrath of God. They're con under condemnation. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, then that is a guarantee, if you are not in Christ, that you must be judged and under condemnation. So, that's pretty bad. You're still in your sins. Ah, but look at verse 18. Consequence number 6. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Your loved ones. Gone. Lost. Right? Doesn't mean anything. Those who have already died, no hope for a bodily resurrection in the future. None. If Jesus is not risen from the dead. To put it the way Paul says, they have perished. They have perished. What does that mean? It means all the dead in Christ, if that's true, who have then perished, they would be lost. No happiness forever, because there's no heaven for them. 
No heaven forever, just hell. They perish, right? And Paul, by perishing, doesn't mean they are extinguished or annihilated. Because the Bible doesn't teach the annihilation of the soul. It doesn't teach soul sleep. No, there's a very real thing going on here. So, the disastrous consequence, these are disastrous consequences, aren't they? If Jesus is not risen from the dead. My hope is in Jesus, right? Is yours? My confidence is in Christ that what he did on the cross, his burial, necessary, and his re resurrection from the dead, and his appearance, and his ascension to glory, and his exaltation at the right hand are necessary for me to get there, to be with him. All of those things must take place and must have happened. To imagine that they, they, it's false and it doesn't happen, then I must perish. Why go out tomorrow and tell someone that Jesus loves them? Why go out tomorrow and tell them that Jesus died for their sins? Why do any of that? No, it's disastrous consequences to this doctrine if you deny it. So where does that bring Paul? It brings him to the end. Verse 19, the end result. If there's no future life, then all you got is this life. Isn't that how the world lives? That's how the world lives. This is all it's here and now, today, that's all I got. I might not be here tomorrow, so I'm going to make the most of today. Live it up. And if this is all there is, if that's your hope, just this life, then Paul says you are to be pitied of all people. Pitied. That word pitied means wretched. That's what you'd be like. A wretched person. You'd be saying the future is non-existent and the present here and now doesn't mean anything. You see, dear congregation, the resurrection of Jesus means something for you as a Christian. Not just the hope of the resurrection to come and the hope of the resurrection body to come. Not just that. But that here and now, I am confessing that Jesus is living and living in me. And because He lives, I live. I live here and I shall live there with Him, right? So the truth, of course, is ultimately what we'll look at next week, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Ah, now Paul just throws out the, the debate. How can some of you say? It's gone. He's dealt with it. In fact, verse 20, Christ, he says, has been raised from the dead. And therefore, if that's true, there's going to be a resurrection for all of us, for you and for me. Okay, so I asked myself, well, what is this? How do I apply this really good theology, doctrine, to my life? Number one, you should see this passage as compelling doctrine from Paul. Compelling doctrine. Because here are these doubting, vacillating Corinthians who are saying, some of them, there's no resurrection of the dead. Who haven't made the consequence that their future resurrection is tied to Jesus' resurrection. So that if you don't believe the dead rise, then Jesus is not raised and then you're lost. They're not making that connection, Paul says. So Paul gives them this compelling argument that is based upon the validation or the witnesses of the Scripture, verses 3 and 4, and the witnesses who saw Jesus alive, so that they might believe. 
compels them by argument, as it were. That's the first thing. It's a compelling doctrine. But secondly, can we not say that this is a comforting doctrine to you and to me? I mean, what, what gives you more comfort that you shall rise because Jesus rose? That you are actually able to put to death sin in you because Jesus died. I mean, there are all consequences, right, to this life and to the life to come that are connected to Christ Himself. Paul says, you would be a fool to promote a salvation that actually fails in the end. You'd be a foolish person, he says. But the resurrection of Jesus assures us that His redemption of us is real and secure and mine. He rose again for us. We sing it. We pray it. We preach it. We believe it. And therefore we shall rise too. Because He rose. It really is a comforting doctrine. And more than that, the point is, who Jesus is now, risen in his, with His new body, the risen Christ, when we see Him, we shall be what? Like Him. Don't you want to be like Him? I mean, that's comforting, right? That all of this, because it's true, means I'll be like my Savior. I'll be like Christ. That's comforting to me. That's what Jesus has done for me. But thirdly, we could say that this is a convicting doctrine. A convicting doctrine. Because it urges you and me to listen to God and to His Word and to believe it. Because if I fail to believe it, then I'm going against God, and certainly the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to me. I must listen to God to deal with my sins. And I must. I must bring them to the cross. Otherwise, face the judgment of God, right? Who wants to be, as verse 17 says, you are still in your sins? You want to be like that? No. We don't want to be like that. But you would be if Jesus did not rise. And you would be if the dead also did not rise. You see, there's more to life than this life, isn't there? There's the life to come. In fact, we are living here and now today for that life. You're preparing yourself here and now today for that life. So this life is a preparation. That's very convicting. That's close at home. So... If you reverse all of this thinking of the Apostle Paul, it's because there is life to come with the Lord Jesus Christ that there is life today with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Or, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. So to live now is Jesus, to die is Jesus and more. Right? Gain. That's why finally, this is a converting doc uh, doctrine. A converting doctrine. What do I mean by that? Your salvation depends on it. My salvation depends on it. Paul tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart what? that God raised him from the dead, what's the consequence? You shall be saved. You shall be saved. And that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too ought to walk in newness of life. 
So that just because that happened to Jesus, I can walk in newness of life here and now. Now the real question is, is that you? If not, you need salvation. You need conversion. You need repentance. You need Christ. You need to believe this. Because new life and real life, the salvation that Christ gives us, rests in what Jesus has accomplished for us. So John, in his gospel, in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, tells us that there will be a resurrection unto life, and there will be a resurrection unto judgment. That all the dead will one day be raised from the dead to face life in Christ, or life without Christ. Conversion means life with Christ. Life in Christ. Because to be without Christ is to be under the wrath and the judgment of God. and What a fearful thing that is for us to face. That's why this is a converting document, be doctrine. Believe it. Believe it. So the resurrection of Jesus seals the deal on your salvation, doesn't it? You're saved because Jesus is alive, because Jesus rose from the dead. It promises your own resurrection, Jesus alive, Jesus raised from the dead. In other words, eternal life has begun here and now, because I've trusted in Christ. But it's not all there is to be yet, because when I get there, I shall enter into the experience fully of life in Christ. To know Christ is everlasting life. And that's what Paul wants these Corinthians. Get your hope right. It's more than just this life. Life is more than this life. It's for the life to come. Let us believe and continue to confess and proclaim and believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and therefore we shall all rise. Let's pray together. Now, Father, how we thank you for your word. This marvelous little argument by the Apostle Paul to convince the Corinthians of the folly of trying to say there's no such thing as a future resurrection. Because if Jesus is not risen from the dead, that would be true. But since he is risen from the dead, then it is true also that there shall be a future resurrection. And the consequences of not believing in the resurrection of the dead, and therefore the resurrection of Jesus, are too horrifying to imagine. But we thank you that you have shown us the truth in the Scriptures, that Jesus died and was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead and he appeared to others. And we have their testimony and the testimony of your word, and therefore we confess that you always are truth itself and that your word is true and we believe it. For to believe anything else is to face your wrath and your judgment. Oh, let us make sure that we are in Christ Jesus this morning, whom to know is everlasting life. So we thank you for these things and ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, will you take your black hymnal?